afternoon, everyone. On behalf of North Sydney Council and the Constant Reader Bookshop, welcome to the library and to the Writers of Stanton program. Before we begin, I would like to acknowledge the traditional custodians of these lands in which we meet, the Gaimaregal people, and to pay our respects to their spirits and ancestors, past, present and emerging. And my name's Amanda Hudson and I'm Council's Community Development Librarian. Today I have the pleasure of introducing David Hill, who will talk about his book, Reckoning, The Forgotten Children and Their Quest for Justice. David Hill was born in England and he came to Australia in 1959 under the Fairbridge Society Child Migrant Scheme. He left school at 15 years old and some years after that, he won a scholarship to the University of Sydney where he studied economics. In 2006, he was awarded a Diploma of Arts in Classical Archaeology from the University of Sydney where he is now an honorary associate in the departments of Archaeology, Classics and Ancient History. In his professional life, he has held a number of executive appointments in the areas of sport, transport, broadcasting, fiscal management and city parks. He was also the chairman of the CREATE Foundation, an organisation representing Australian children in institutional care and also the managing director of the ABC. David has published 10 books, so please give a warm welcome to David Hill. Uh, the Stanton Library is a very favourite place for me. I, I left uh, school at 15 and worked for a few years, and one job I had when I was about 17 uh, was in the North Shore Gas Company, which used to be down on the corner of Blues Point Road and, uh, and the railway station there. And I used to come up in my one-hour lunch to the library, and in those days there was only this bit. And I used to study modern art books that were down there, and Amanda tells me... The same books are still there, so it's great. Can I begin by asking how many of you would have known beforehand about the child migrant story in Fairbridge? Well, that's, that's really interesting. I'm absolutely staggered at the... At the uh, Britain is the only country in history that exported large numbers of its children to, to the colonies. Um, uh, the Fairbridge scheme... Fairbridge was the original scheme... And it's the one I came out under. And it was designed by a guy called Kinsley Fairbridge um, in the Edwardian era. And therein, I think, lies the inherent problem with all of these schemes. I'm not sure I need that, unless I stand. <laughs> uh, Fairbridge wrote a paper in 1908 called Two Problems and One Solution. And the two problems were, what are we going to do with all of these children from the slums of the cities of England? And secondly, what are we going to do to increase the white stock of the, colonies, the empire's colonies? And the one solution was to simply put them together. Um, the scheme may have been well-intentioned, but that's the best you can say for it. Um, I gave evidence to a UK inquiry a couple of years ago and made the point that if you had set out to design a scheme that had the highest possible risk for the welfare of the children, this is what you'd do. You'd take kids as young as four and take them and permanently separate them from their parents. You'd ship them across to the other side of the world, put them on a train, take them over the mountains to a remote sheep station, have staff that are poorly selected, 
have inadequate and non-existent supervision and inspection by the child welfare authorities. And that's exactly what happened. Now, uh, in fairness, they designed these schemes, Kinsley Fairbridge designed these schemes in Edwardian times, where it was thought that all you needed was basic food, a lot of discipline, a high level of regimen, and that was enough. The idea of nurturing, of caring, of loving, and developing children's needs and interests wasn't part of the equation. And these, most of these uh, child migrant schemes failed to deliver on the promise. <clears throat> we started off okay. Uh, I came from, I'm illegitimate. I came uh, as one of four boys to, my mum was a single parent. We lived on a council estate. Everybody was poor in those days on the English council estates, but we were particularly poor. But mum somehow always managed to put food on the table. And Fairbridge was one of the schemes, and they were, by the mid-1950s, and this isn't widely appreciated, it was big business, child migration. There were 26 child migrant centres around the six states of Australia, run by the Protestant churches, the Catholic Church, and charities like Barnardo's and, and like Fairbridge. And they said to my mum, if you really love your kids, you know, give them to us. We can give them opportunities and education you can't possibly provide them. It was a, it was a, a pretty attractive offer. I was 12 at the time. I had a twin brother and an older brother. And it was very much a collective decision. We thought this sounded like a good idea. And we were sold this idea of a land of milk and honey. And um, uh, it didn't turn out to be that way. So we came to Australia and uh, the way over, it was, it was marvellous. They put us on the old SS Strathaird in the old first-class cabins. We had five-course lunches and six-course dinners every day. We'd never seen such luxury. Um, the, oh, they, they took us to London and outfitted us. We had hand-me-down clothing. And we were outfitted in, in these beautiful new summer and winter wardrobes. And we were each given... This is on the cover of the book. This is Clara with her cardboard suitcase. We all got one of those. And we all got these new wardrobes, winter and summer clothes. And we thought, well, this was terrific. And uh, on the ship on the Strathaird, the steward would wake you up in the morning with a cup of tea. He'd wake, gently wake up, stir your tea for you. And you'd all go off for breakfast and these huge men, you'd all in French. Waiters in starched white uniforms. And, and uh, uh, every afternoon we'd sit in the forehead lounge listening to a string quartet. I'd never seen a violin before playing Beethoven and Tchaikovsky. This was marvellous. We thought we'd really hit the jackpot. And then we arrived in Australia and it all changed very dramatically. We were met at Piermont uh, off the Strathairn and we were put on the Forbes mail train and taken to Moolong and out to Fairbridge. And it was only when we got there we realised we knew nothing about the place. We had never seen a photograph of it. We had believed the great stories. And... Uh, we were all put into cottages. Uh, there were about 15 cottages, each with 15 or 16 kids. The girls were in separate cottages. So brothers and sisters were split up. Even brothers were split up from brothers and put in different uh, cottages. But I was lucky I got into a cottage with my brother. And uh, it was very austere. The, the cottages were made, all made of timber. Uh, there were no floor coverings. Uh, the beds had no pillows. Uh, usually it was cold showers even in winter. And uh, we all had to go over to this village hall for breakfast, and it was the same every day for years. A bowl of porridge. We didn't have crockery. We had steel bowls and beakers and stuff. And um, uh, you got a piece of bread that the boys baked. 
or, or most of the food was produced uh, by, by the uh, boys and the girls once they reached 15. Everybody left, co- despite the promise of a better education, we all had to leave school at 15 to work on the farm. I was killing sheep at 15, and uh, we baked our own bread, and we had our own dairy and big vegetable gardens and so on. And it was a far more severe place than any of us had anticipated, quite brutal as well. Uh, the corporal punishment, um, which we didn't know, I found out later and wrote about, uh, we were uh, governed or protected by the New South Wales uh, Child Welfare Act, uh, where we were described as inmates, and, and uh, it prescribed the limitations of corporal punishment, which were all exceeded illegally. I mean, kids are getting beaten by ho- with hockey sticks. Uh, public thrashings for serious misdemeanours where you'd have to go down on a Saturday night and the whole village would witness kids being routinely beaten. And, that's, that's, and I had no idea of the incidence of the, the sexual abuse. I wrote the first book about this in 2007 called The Forgotten Children, and I thought that was the story. And in it, a few of the Fairbridge kids had told me about being sexually abused. But that book, instead of being the end of the story, was the beginning of the story that has led to this book, which was The Reckoning. It's the calling to account of the institutions and the governments that failed the children. And after The Forgotten Children, where only three or four kids had talked about being sexually abused, eight years later in a court case, 160 or 60% of the surviving children were compensated for sexual abuse. Now, that shocked everybody. I gave evidence to a UK inquiry, which is part of what the book's about, and they asked me to calculate and give the basis of my calculation. What was the incidence of sexual abuse of children in this institution? And I put the figure at 60%. Now, initially, they said, 60, don't you mean 16? No, 60%. And after giving evidence and all of the information... They asked me if I'd probably underestimated the extent of the abuse. I thought The Forgotten Children would be the end of the story, but this book is the reckoning. It's how we eventually got all of the institutions and the governments who were responsible for failing the children and called to account. That includes the British government, the Australian government, the New South Wales government, as well as the institution of Fairbridge here in New South Wales, and the institution of Fairbridge in the UK. The first action we took after I wrote Forgotten Children, one of the Fairbridge kids, a guy called Bob Stevens, was rang me and said, listen, I, I reckon the Fairbridge kids, as a result of what you've written, based on their... The key to these books is it's the kids' stories. Not academics, not historians, the kids' own experiences. And Bob said, I think that we got grounds to prosecute or sue for compensation. And he said that he had phoned Slater and Gordon, you know, the big uh, law firm. And uh, Slater and Gordon had said to him, how many kids do you think would be interested? And Bob had said, well, I don't know, but David Hill might. So he asked, would I ring Slater and Gordon, which I did. I said to Slater and Gordon, uh, my guess is um, the kids would be interested, but they got no money. They're disempowered and disadvantaged, and this goes through life. You disempower and disadvantage a kid, and you'll end up with a a maimed adult. And Slater and Gordon, I said, you'll have to do it on a no-win, no-fee basis. And they agreed. 
So I got the Fairbridge kids together, started off with about 40, and we ended up with nearly two, over 200 kids. Uh, almost every surviving child lodged a claim for uh, compensation. I, I didn't because I decided I was far more effective as an advocate and supporter of the Fairbridge kids, and what happened to me was relatively mild compared with what happened to these other poor bastards. Uh, but anyway, <clears throat> we started on embarking on the action, and then we encountered, we knew it would be difficult. The first case involved the kids suing Fairbridge, the New South Wales government, because the New South Wales government's Department of Child Welfare was supposed to be oversighting on a day-to-day basis the functioning of the school and didn't. And the other defendant was the Australian federal government. Because as it turned out, when we came out to Australia, our parents or guardians had to sign away their rights as parents. Most of them handing over the guardianship to the Australian federal government, who took responsibility for our welfare. Most of the parents, incidentally, and I write about it fairly comprehensively here, tried to get their children back when they discovered the children were terribly unhappy and were told, you've relinquished your rights, you can't have them back. And uh, that happened in a, in a lot of cases. So the first case we took in 2000, uh, 2007 was forgotten ch- children. 2008, we began the action. And you realise how dirty governments fight in these legal uh, issues. The Commonwealth Government and the New South Wales Government and Fairbridge were the three defendants uh, in this case. The lies, the denials and the cover-ups were just appalling. Uh, we, We took them to the Supreme Court in New South Wales. We were there seven years in the Supreme Court. They spent the whole time bogging it down in seeking further and better particulars, uh, contesting uh, the, the uh, uh, limitations period, uh, contesting whether we could pursue this as a class action or everybody had to sue individually. Seven years in the Supreme Court, we didn't hear from one witness. We didn't hear one sentence of evidence. It was bog- we went back 21 times to the court and each time were sent away because they were seeking further particulars. Deliberately bogging it down, the governments. And this was a... I I tried desperately. We eventually got them to agree to mediation, which we sought for years. But just to give you some idea of the tactics, these are governments, responsible governments. In one case, there was a parallel case to ours operating at the time. It involved some Aboriginal women who had been in an Aboriginal girls' home in Brewarrina, in western New South Wales and in Orange later, who had been sexually abused. And uh, the State Crown solicitor representing the New South Wales government, as they did in our case, uh, kept on asking for more more evidence, more more and further particulars. We're contesting this, we want... And at one point, after years in the district court in the, the Aboriginal girls' case, they got a letter from the State Crown solicitor because some of the girls had been sexually abused by this guy called Gibson. And the State Crown solicitor said, we want, we want further proof of your allegation that this guy sexually abused the Aboriginal girls. At the time they sought that information, they'd been in the court five years, and at the time that the State Crown solicitor sought the information, Gibson had been to court, pleaded guilty, and was currently serving, serving a 12-year jail term. 
and they want further evidence of his guilt. In my case, I remember, I wrote to the Federal Minister for Immigration, uh, Chris Bowen, uh, and uh, the New South Wales Minister for Family and Children's Services, Prue Goud. You remember Prue? Well, I used to work with her in the ABC, uh, uh, so I knew Prue. Prue didn't even reply to my letter. Because I was saying what happened in the end, you should replace all this litigation where the only people who are going to win are the lawyers. Probably 10 or $20 million were spent on lawyers in this case, and it was never solved in... It never got to trial. Never even got to trial after seven years. And I said, let's have a redress scheme, which they've eventually done out of the Royal Commission, which is a, a good move. I didn't even hear back from Prue. I got a letter eventually from the State Crown Solicitor's Office that Samfrey Appleby would have been proud of. And it said, Dear Mr Hill, uh, you've written to the Minister asking to discuss with the Government the uh, uh, alternative to litigation being a redress scheme, mediation. Um, I, I have to advise you the Minister's not prepared to see you. Could you in future direct any inquiries or requests for a meeting to me? And by the way, I can't see you either. <laughs> yeah, seven years. They finally agreed because... I wrote, to, I wrote articles for the Sydney Morning Herald and The Age. I, wrote, I made submissions to the Royal Commission that was Julia Gillard's Royal Commission. Uh, we tried everything, wrote to government ministers. And finally, they got surround, we surrounded the bastards and they finally agreed to mediation. Seven years, no trial, no evidence, no witnesses. It took them two days. When they were finally trapped... I was so angry. You know, there's $20 million probably spent on lawyers unnecessarily. And it took them two days when they sat down and mediated and they agreed to pay $24 million compensation to the Fairbridge kids. We had a similar ring around with the British government and eventually um, the British government, I gave evidence to an inquiry in the UK in 2017 and after decades of denial, including, incidentally, a case in the 1950s, just before I came out, the British sent a, what they called a fact-finding mission, the British government, to Australia to look at these child migrant schemes. There were 26 of them that were operating around Australia at the time. And they found 10 of them, including my Fairbridge, was, and this is their language, the Home Office, who drew up a, a blacklist of institutions condemned unfit for children. And they told Fairbridge, no more kids can go. There were 16 kids in a house in Kent being ready to be put on the ship with their suitcases of their new clothes. Oh, incidentally, the sweetest thing about these new clothes, we've got these fantastic new wardrobes. As soon as we got to Australia, they took them off us and they disappeared. But there were 16 kids in Kent ready to board a ship to come to Australia in July 1956. And... Uh, the government said they can't go. You know, Fairbridge is on the blacklist. And Fairbridge, this is all well documented. It's all in the public service files in queue. And they, the Fairbridge threatened to its political clout and said the issue would become an embarrassment of the government in the House of Commons and in the Lords. And they would wheel out the president of the Fairbridge Society, who was the Queen's uncle, the Duke of Gloucester. Fairbridge had huge aristocratic and royalty uh, support. The current Queen put £2,000 into Fairbridge in 1948. 
Edward VIII, before he abdicated and was Prince of Wales, he put £1,000 into in the 1930s. He started the ball rolling with aristocratic and royalty funding when he said of Fairbridge, this is not charity, this is an imperial investment. And uh, I gave evidence in the same inquiry as Gordon Brown. He was livid because he had apologised to child migrants in 2009, 2010. But he said all of this information he only read about in Forgotten Children. Even though it's the bureaucrats, it's, it's publicly available and they never advised the government of it. Well, at the end of the dine, without going through all the detail because it's all in the book, the Fairbridge kids took a series of actions and ended up nailing the British government, who compensated all surviving child migrants, uh, Fairbridge in the UK, which has agreed to pay funding but hasn't done so yet, the New South Wales government, the Australian government and Fairbridge in Australia. That's why it's called The Reckoning. We finally called the bastards to account. But the question is, has justice been done? Well, in many respects, justice cannot be done. Uh, I knew very little about sexual abuse of children. But sadly, I've learned most of those people never recover. And the perpetrators of the evil are all in the grave. And so we've named the villains, which we wanted to do, but there's no justice, really. But, but we've had some big wins. And the Fairbridge kids, you know, the people that talked to me and interviewed for the first book, Forgotten Children, and now this one, I was the first person any of them had ever told because they all said they thought it only happened to them and they also said they didn't think anybody would believe them. And now, as a result of these five insti institutions, three governments and the two Fairbridges, as a result of them apologising, publicly acknowledging their failure and agreeing to compensate the victims, the children are now believed. And I'd also like to think a big... It's not just a win for the Fairbridge kids. I'd like to think that this issue, the fact there's such a high level of awareness of this now... Uh, represented by you today, I, I, I think it's far less likely that something as tragically evil as this will ever happen again. At least I hope so. Thank you. Um, what was the payout total from all the... Um, ah, good question. Claims. What's the total payout? Well, uh, the Australian government, New South Wales government and Fairbridge, New South Wales, that was $24 million. Um, <clears throat> and incidentally, another sinister thing about them finally agreeing to me mediation was, of course, it's all confidential. But a, a lot of the, the victims have given me their affidavits, so I've managed to... But it's the only time that we knew what happened to them. I mean, there's a little girl called Vivian who was first sexually abused when she was five. They held her head down a toilet to cure her of bedwetting when she was six. Anyway, there's $24 million on the Australian case. The British government uh, agreed that they had failed the children and agreed uh, in 2018 to pay £20,000 
to each surviving migrants, but child migrants. But that's not just Fairbridge, it's all 26. Uh, and that would total about $50, $60 million. So we're approaching $100 million. And you've still got <coughs> the Fairbridge UK, which is now owned by the Prince's Trust, Prince Charles Trust. And there's a long and complicated involvement of Prince Charles in all of this. Not, not that he would ever have known about it, but they've acknowledged they should have known. They should have known when they merged with Fairbridge in 2011. Uh, and they've agreed to pay compensation as well. So my guess is it will, it will reach $100 million Australian. That's just out, no, one Fairbridge. There was a bigger original Fairbridge in Pinjarra in Western Australia. This is just Fairbridge in Molong, where I went. Uh, well, there were about 1,000 kids went through, but, of course, that started in 1938. Uh, the, the survivors, there would have been over 200 uh, survivors who shared in the 24 million. Uh, no, no, no. They, they had a very complicated an elaborate assessment process, Slater and Gordon. And look, I, I saw Slater and Gordon as cynical guns for hire, but they did a very good job. And the, the way in which they distributed the money... Well, first of all, the $24 million, Slater and Gordon took five in fees. But that sounds a lot. But they had this case for eight years and they had kept on having to have detailed cases for every applicant. So I, I, I ended up being pretty impressed by them. So there was just under $20 million was shared, but it was based on the incidents and the severity of the, the, uh, the uh, abuse. Uh, and they had this process, and there was an appeal mechanism, and it was approved by the Supreme Court. Um, but the average payout was about 90,000. That was the average. I know some were as low as 20. Of course, all that's confidential, but all the kids were telling me what they got. And I know some, some kids got little Vivian, the little five-year-old. Uh, she got... Uh, Oh, close to a quarter of a million, as she should, as she should. And, and, and she was a terrible victim. She had a terrible life, and you could pay her $100 million and it wouldn't have made any bloody difference. It wouldn't have improved her life. David, if, if the, um, uh, the rights to, to, of guardianship to the children were assigned to the Australian government, on what basis was the British government sued since the... It seems like the picture was all rosy until you got off the ship and your um, care was put into the hands of the Australian and New South Wales authorities. So the British government may have argued that it was blameless in the process. Yes. Well, in fact, in this inquiry that I appeared before in 2017 in London with Gordon Brown, who took a similar view to me, John Major took a different view. He said, as Prime Minister, I took the view that once these kids were sent overseas, they're the responsibility of the overseas government and not the British government. So he said it's got nothing to do with them. The inquiry found, and this is the, this is the nub of it, and it was in the Forgotten Children and it's repeated in here, that the British government knew it continued to fund. The, the governments funded these programs. They subsidised them. And the British government continued to subsidise Fairbridge even after its, uh, its task force, its fact-finding mission, had found that Fairbridge uh, was condemned unfit for children. And it was sitting in the Kew Public Records Office. 
And uh, the inquiry in 2017 that I appeared before concluded that the British government knew and yet continued to allow children to go, and me. What really gives me the shits, three years after they've been condemned unfit to children, nobody told us. I came out in 59. And hundreds of other kids. I thought it was me. <laughs> uh, can I ask, were any of the children reunited with their parents? Yes, yes, I was. In fact, in fact, in fact um, uh, um, the, the, scheme, the scheme was designed, uh, inherent in the scheme, and, and, and it, it's, it's chronicled in government documents as well as Fairbridge documents. While they sold the idea to usually struggling single parents, very few of us were orphans. We were just bloody poor. And uh, the parents were persuaded to sign away their guardianship of their kids to send them to these schemes where they could be given opportunities that the parents couldn't provide them and so on. Um, but the, the, um, in other documents, the British government uh, and Australia House and the Australian Department of Immigration and Fairbridge all thought that the parents for kids to be in this situation were failed or irresponsible. And so they, they, there were instructions given to Fairbridge uh, and to the other uh, child migrant agencies not to send children where the parents are likely to follow them out or want to follow them out because they didn't want the children reuniting. They thought that the parents would abuse the children once they got to a working, paid working age and so on. So they, they deliberately designed a scheme to prevent parents. But by the late 50s, and it's chronicled in, in the book, uh, the enlightened child welfare professionals in Britain were becoming increasingly uh, critical of child migration. And unknown to us, you know, w ignorant working class poor people, we had no idea that they were thwarting the recruitment of children to be sent to these schemes. They had previously cooperated and now said, no, it's not good for the children. And, and uh, they went public from 1948 onwards, the child welfare professionals about this. And um, uh, so Fairbridge, the, the numbers of recruits declined through the 19, late 1950s. So they had to amend the scheme to what they called the one-parent scheme. And this is where you still had to be poor. You still came out unaccompanied, as we did. Came out on a, we came out in a group of 12 kids on the SS Strathaird. But a single parent could follow the kids out later, and that's what my mum did. And that's why I've done so well compared with these poor bloody Fairbridge kids. See, I was 12, nearly 13. I had a twin brother and an older brother. I was only there three years. My mum followed us out and we got back together again. I left school at 15 like everybody else. In fact, I must tell you this. I, um, my first home in real home in Australia after Fairbridge... I left here just before my brothers, and it was 96 Union Street, North Sydney. Uh, and uh, <coughs> my mum had a bed sit there. And it's still there, the terrace house. And in those days, the terrace house was split into five flatettes. And everybody lived with cramped accommodation in those days. All migrants from Europe, and we all five flatettes shared the one toilet and the one bathroom. You can imagine the, the organisation of that. Uh, but I, I came down and got a job. My first job was in uh, Willoughby Road, Crow's Nest, in Ismay's Hardware and Locksmith Shop. That was my, as a 15-year-old, £5, 4 and sixpence a week. So, I, and I, a few years later, I, I uh, 
got very bored with all of that and the gas company and, and I went back to tech and, uh, and uh, uh, matriculated and got a scholarship to university and uh, never looked back. And I, I ended up uh, teaching economics out there and meeting some really good people like Paul Latham, my old rugby league mate from Sydney University. And that's more than 50 years ago, Paul. That, uh, but but um, me being one of the kids that effectively reunited with the family, you know, that gave me a second chance. Consider the typical Fairbridge kid. The typical Fairbridge kid was Clara. She was eight years of age. Now, Fairbridge wanted them young. The reason they wanted them young in Fairbridge's design was before they were contaminated by the vices of pauperism. And so they wanted them to send them out there as young as possible. They never saw their parents again. The typical Fairbridge kids were eight years of age, some as young as four, and never saw their parents again. When, they left, when you left school at 15, you worked for two years. The school song was boys to be farmers and girls for farmers, wives. And we were trained to be farmhands and the girls were trained to be domestic servants. And at 17 years of age, these typical Fairbridge kids, I had a mum to go to. It might have been a bedsit in North Sydney, but I had a mum to go to. The typical Fairbridge kids were found jobs on remote sheep stations. So they left Fairbridge with a cardboard suitcase with not as many nice clothes in it as they came. No money, no family, no one out there for them at all. And the other thing which I haven't talked about today, there's a whole chapter in it here, the disgusting, deplorable undereducation of the Fairbridge kids. Forty-odd percent of the Fairbridge kids have gone through life unable to read or write because they, they were assessed by the... Edu- this wasn't Fairbridge's fault... This is the New South Wales Department of Education. I've got their original reports. They said, given the intelligence scatter of Fairbridge children, who they described us as retards, 40%, at least 40% of the Fairbridge kids cannot be taught in mainstream classes. And they're all stuck, educationalists here will know this, the OC classes, 1G, 2G, where they weren't taught to read or write because it was believed they were either mentally retarded or developmentally slow. And, and, and nearly half the Fairbridge kids have gone through life so profoundly disadvantaged they can't read or write properly. But anyway, there were a lucky few who came out late, like me and my brothers, who got back together as a family, and we're the ones that did OK. But most of the Fairbridge kids were so profoundly disadvantaged it's lasted through their whole adult lives. David... Um Congratulations on sticking with what must have been a really difficult task. Thank you. Um, my mother was recruited to work for Fairbridge when she was in England in 1937 and decided not to take the job. And I'm not sure whether that was a good thing or a bad thing. But it made me think, I wonder, do you know about how many of the staff were recruited in England to come out here? And, and also, were there many women on the staff of Fairbridge? More women than men. Um, uh, no, I don't know the sources of recruitment, except a lot of them were English. 1937 was the year before our scheme opened in Molong, so they may have been recruiting to open Molong in 1938. Ah, Fairbridge in Western Australia, at Pinjarra, south of Perth, was twice the size of ours and, and started, a lot, uh, started in 1912. It was the first of the 
big child migrant schemes. Pinjarra was much bigger. But it was the same history as ours, exactly the same history as ours, yes. Uh, so no, I, I, I don't know anything about the, the sourcing of the, the staff. But why there were more women than men is because, uh, and this is something that wasn't clear uh, to us when we were in England, most of, we were almost self-sufficient in food. We baked our own bread, we killed the sheep, we milked the cows, three o'clock in the morning and three o'clock in the afternoon, 28-day rosses. That, that was the toughest thing I ever did and I thought it would kill me. Uh, and we had a vast vegetable garden and we did most of our own food production. There were only a handful of farm supervisory staff, probably five at most, because the boys did all the farm work and the girls did all the domestic cleaning up and domestic duties. Uh, each cottage had about 15 or 16 kids in them uh, and each one had a cottage mother. So there would have been 12 or 15 cottage mothers uh, and uh, there was a, usually an unqualified nursing sister who attended all the cuts and bruises. Uh, so there would have been, at any given time, probably 20 women and no more than half a dozen male staff members. David and David Hay, thank you very much for the work you've done. Another Sydney University rugby league player. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you for your tireless work in in revealing and and, um, the journey that you've been on with this and um, the exposure of of it. I'm wondering about whether or not Fairbridge was also involved in the other empire locations like Canada, New Zealand, South Africa and places like that. Not South Africa, not New Zealand, but Canada, yes, and Zimbabwe or Rhodesia. Uh-huh. Uh, they, the first one was the big one in Pinjarra in Western Australia where your mum was thinking of going um, the next one was uh, on Vancouver Island in Canada mm-hmm. in fact there's a lovely story they suspended uh, child migration everywhere including to Australia in 1940 because of World War II and the last shipment of Fairbridge kids for Australia uh, sailed north up uh, uh, the English coast and across the North Atlantic, they were attacked by a German convoy and they got to Canada and they had a four-day train trip across Canada to Vancouver Island, stayed at the Vancouver school on Vancouver Island and then took, took a boat down to Hawaii where they all ate tropical fruit for the first time and got sick and then went to the first time they'd ever been to the movies in Auckland and then finally to Fairbridge. And it's a terrific uh, trip. So there was a Fairbridge in Vancouver Island in Canada. In late 1930s, they opened one in, near Bulawayo in Rhodesia, or current-day Zimbabwe. Uh, but it closed because of the war and reopened again after the war. That was a slightly different one. They took kids from a better class than the rest of us because they had the blacks to do all the farm labouring. And so they needed a slightly higher class of English man and woman to run the to run the management of the farm. So Vancouver Island, Pinjarra, Western Australia, Molong, New South Wales, and um, there were two small ones, one outside of Adelaide and one outside of Launceston, but they didn't last for very long. But the idea was to expand it to... But the the, the criticisms were growing after the war and they just found they had too much resistance to do what they wanted. Thank you. Thank you, David, for this uh, address. It's been very revealing. Um, um, I'm just thinking, despite this horrific story that you're telling us about, you are obviously a success story. And I'm wondering, do you have any figures 
on how many others, you know, were there a few, were there a lot that made a success of it? We, well, anec more anecdotal, but yes, he, the, the rough figures of the thousand kids that went through my Fairbridge farm school, I think 10 or 11 of us got to university. All but one or two of those were like me, who came out under the one parent scheme and we reunited with, had the support of a reunited family. Uh, probably only one or two got to university otherwise. 50% um, of the Fairbridge kids left school before completing year eight to give you some idea. We hope you have enjoyed spending your time with us. Catch up with more of our audio recordings and relive the discussion, insights and laughter of writers at Stanton. To find out more about our other events and programs, please visit www.northsydney.nsw.gov.au forward slash library. Thank you for listening.